To Wash Day, my friends and relatives, welcome to the Red Road Radio Show. I'm your host, Lou Hastings, from the Native Now Foundation. And uh, we made it through another week. We made it through another week. Um, so glad to be with you again live uh, all week this week. We, uh, we cruised right through it. I can't believe that it is Friday already, but, um, but here we are. And, and we are live. And as we are live, I'm going to invite you to become a part of the show. And you can do that in a number of ways. And you could become a part of the show if you're listening to this on a, on a rebroadcast or in the archives also by reaching out to us on Facebook at Red Road Radio Show or the Native Now Foundation. Please feel free to do that. But if you are listening live and you want to jump in on any of the stories that we cover or anything that we talk about, I want you to call us. You can call in at 810-479-4394. You can, if you happen to be on Twitter, you, you know, we, we had a guest this week who was just talking about how, um, how Twitter is the medium that she chose to use. If you're on Twitter, hashtag FYI live is the way to go. I've got my Twitter screen up in front of me here. I've got uh, Mr. Executive Producer out there yes, ready I'm to here. take your phone call. Yes, and I've also got the screen open on FYINation.com's chat room. So if anybody wants to go to FYINation.com and jump in that chat room there, highly recommend it. It is uh, an awesome place to hang out because awesome people hang out in there. And, uh, and we are thankful for them every single evening. And that's a great place to put your comments in as well. Because as we're listening to the show and as the show progresses... Um, one of the great things about the chat room is that these messages can come through real time as part of the conversation. And we'll bring them in. We'll absolutely bring them in. And if I don't happen to see them, Thomas, you'll see them and tell me that uh, someone's made a comment. So uh, it's win-win it's all the way around. So those are ways that you can interact with the show. I want you to do that all the time all the time because it makes the show stronger and it carries the message further. I don't know if I can stress that any stronger that this will push this message forward because that is the purpose of the show. And speaking of purpose of the show, part of it is news, part of it is commentary, part of it is interviews. We're going to do a few news stories tonight and see what you think. And then listen to an audio clip from a woman who is part of uh, what they call the, the stolen generations. And we'll get into those stories a little bit later in the show about what that means. But basically it's talking about the residential school system. 
And it didn't just devastate indigenous communities in this country. It devastated indigenous communities in Canada, and it devastated indigenous communities in Australia. Um, this is not a situation with tribal nations and indigenous people that is unique to this country. Sadly, sadly, there is a lot of collateral damage, a lot of people who are still suffering the effects of genocide and uh, oppression and racism. And I don't think that, well, you'd be hard-pressed to, to find another community where when genocide was not successful, that every other measure of cultural obliteration wasn't thrown at them than indigenous communities. Anywhere, anywhere on the planet. And when you see it and you hear it in these news stories and you hear how it's affected uh, communities, it, it's really shocking because we're not taught this. We are not given this information. This information has to come to us through either deeper research of what we do learn in school, what very little we learn in school, or radio shows like this, or actually going into indigenous communities and speaking to people who have experienced this, which I dare say most people have not done. Or if they have done it, it's been very cursory. I, I think I would be hard-pressed to find uh, more than five friends of mine who have actually gone to a reservation or an indigenous community and spent time with elders or residents and spoken to them about history and spoken to them about uh, what it really means to exist in that reality on a reservation or in a reserve if you're in Canada or if you're in a community under fire, as in those communities in South America, I'd be hard-pressed uh, to find those, those folks. So when you can come across this information, I hope that all of you out there who, who do listen to this show, especially on a regular basis, are soaking it up like a sponge. And I'm hoping that it sparks you 
to to do more research, to find more stories. I can't tell you, since I started this show a couple of years ago, how many people in my Facebook um, land, my Facebook friends world, send me articles and say, hey, Lou, did you see this? Hey, Lou, do you know about this? Hey, Lou, what's going on with this? And I love that. I love that because that tells me that, A, they were listening, and B, it's making them think. It's making them think. And when they do come across an article, they don't just look at it and go, hey, that's not for me. I have no care about this. This doesn't affect me. They're not doing that. They're reading it, it's, it's affecting them, and they're sending it to me and going, did you see this? You know how you can get tagged on, uh, on articles on Facebook? I've been tagged, I think the, the record is uh, 20 times for one article, <laughs> where, where 20 of my friends independently tagged me in the same article. They read the same article and went, hey, did you see this? Hey, did, what do you know about this? Nothing makes me happier than that. So, um, so when I tell you to reach out to me on social media, uh, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Odds are I did see it or, or read it, but... Um, but there have been articles that have been sent to me that uh, that I don't I don't get to see. So I love that. So if you find anything and you want to send it to me, please do. Please do. I'm recommending that you do that. So with that, let's get right into our first story. This comes from CBC. Um, this is out of Canada, but you will recognize the story. And Thomas, uh, you probably will as well. Oh, um, pretty. How, yeah, get, check it out. Indigenous Water Solutions, two steps forward, one step back. We will get there. Um, there is a uh, an Indigenous Affairs Manager, uh, Minister, Carolyn Bennett, in Canada's says there's a five-year plan to provide drinkable tap water to all communities. Is it... This story, by the way, is from two days ago. So we're not talking about a story that, you know, is five, five years old or 10 years old or 50 years old. A five-year plan to provide drinkable tap water to all communities. That means, that says to me, and to you, by extension... That there are communities, Flint, that don't have drinkable tap water in 2017, as of two days ago. What the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What are we doing to our water? And people can say all they want about the water protectors and Standing Rock. Uh, they can mock them, which they do. They can um, marginalize them, which they do. 
They can suppress their message in corporate media, which they do. But something's happening to the water. And this story is just one of those that that highlights it. So Margot uh, McDermott of CBC wrote this story. Cleaning up drinking water in indigenous communities appears to be a case of two steps forward, one step back. According to new government numbers, there are 71 long-term drinking water advisories in existence for a year or more in First Nations communities across Canada. This is not just one area. This is across Canada. We know how big Canada is. Since November of 2015, 18 such warnings have been lifted, allowing the communities to drink their tap water. But 12 advisories have been added, according to figures provided by the Department of Indigenous and Northern Affairs. It's an example of a complex, tough task uh, that's facing the Trudeau government, which has pledged to have all long-term drinking water advisories lifted within five years. First of all, that's a tall order. Second of all, you're telling me that there's still we're still five years out from figuring out how to solve this problem. And there is clearly a problem. So... Quote, I don't think you get anywhere without a hard target. And this is our hard target, and we're committed to it, said Indigenous Affairs Minister Carolyn Bennett in an interview with CBC News. Bennett, who served as opposition critic for the portfolio before she was appointed minister in November 2015, describes the current state of drinking water in Indigenous communities as, quote, totally unacceptable. We need to fix this, she said. A lot of Canadians have been helping with water projects in Africa and all around the world, and they had no idea that there were places in Canada where you couldn't just turn on the tap and drink the water. And so I think the consciousness has been raised. The consciousness has been raised a little. Not a lot, a little. How many people... Would you say, Mr. Executive Producer, are familiar enough with the water situation even in Flint, Michigan, after all of this time? You know, um, that's a funny thing. Every time I go and um, I, and funny as in sad, not funny as in haha, but every time I say I'm uh, from Flint, Michigan, uh, and move, moved from Flint, Michigan, their first question is, how's the water? So I think I think it's more people than the, you think, but I don't think they actually get exactly what went on and what, like the, the, like, the details. They know something bad happened, but they don't, they don't grasp the the nature of why it happened, the particulars, and everything that went along with it. 
You get what you get what I mean? Yep. Absolutely. And that makes total sense because think about how we are conditioned especially in this country. You know, in in our highly industrialized country where we can just walk to the bathroom and turn on the tap or we can walk to the kitchen sink and turn on the tap or we can go you know to our showers and our bathtubs and turn on the tap and the expectation is that we are going to get clean water we there's there's not even a thought in our head that something other than that will come out of that tap we are so conditioned and brought up and so fortunate actually compared to a lot of places on this entire globe to be able to have that kind of freedom and the fact that there are places that are struggling tells us not only is there an issue that either someone is uh, un, um, unable to explain or unwilling to solve. And we need to figure it out. We need to figure it out. So last year's federal budget in Canada earmarked $1.8 billion over five years to help First Nation communities build new on-reserve water infrastructure. That money will also help ensure facilities are run correctly and train water system operators. The budget also included over $141 million in new funding for water monitoring and testing. But opposition critics say the liberals are over-optimistic about their deadline to solve a decades-old problem. In my view, that's not fast enough, said NDP Indigenous Affairs critic Romeo Saganash. They've been here for a year and a half almost, meaning the administration. And at that um, pace... I don't think we'll get to the finish line with the remaining three and a half years in this administration. The latest number from Indigenous Affairs on drinking water advisories in place for a year or more. Current long-term drinking water advisory 71. Advisories lifted since November 2015-18. Advisories added as of this month, this month, 12. So, long and short-term advisories tracked by Health Canada and BC First Nations Health Authority, 150. That is totally unacceptable. Conservative Indigenous Affairs critic Kathy McLeod agreed, adding that the Harper government, which is the one before Trudeau, actually spent more on indigenous water. It provided more than $3 billion over eight years for its water action plan. They're not spending as much money as we did to solve a very important problem. And I don't actually think 
they're going to get the job done without significant dollar investment and significant change in how they do it, McLeod said. But Bennett says that she's releasing an update this week to show what her department has done and how she hopes to reach that five-year goal. She describes the liberal approach as bottom-up, talking to the communities first about their needs. What is the plan they want? What is the source they want? Where do they want their source water? What kind of plant would they like? I I don't know if they're going to get those answers from those communities to a satisfactory level, but she said it's not just building the system. We have to maintain the system and making sure that young people are trained to manage the water plant in their community. Many First Nations communities complain that it takes too long, from five to ten years to solve drinking water problems, and they blame a cumbersome federal bureaucracy. This is a serious problem in Canada, but think about think about this This is a cautionary tale for this country. Now, this person quoted here, actually, it's not a person, it was a community. They blame a cumbersome federal bureaucracy for it taking five to ten years to solve drinking water problems. Red flag, cautionary tale, When you have a new administration in this country who wants to smash regulations in favor of businesses, in favor of jobs, and there's nothing wrong with creating jobs. Everybody needs a job. People need jobs. But you can't and I'm use I'm going to use a uh, you know an old saying that that my mother used to to use a lot. You can't chop off your nose to spite your face. And this is where we're headed. This is where we're headed. You start scaling back the EPA. You start scaling back regulations that protect water and the environment from business. Just think about where we were as an industrialized nation growing and, uh, and businesses and factories and companies just exploding everywhere. And they were, uh, you know, damning the torpedoes as they went. It didn't matter. Make the product faster and get it out to the consumers. And they were pumping toxic sludge into water. And in the 70s, it was an absolute mess. And then it got cleaned up. Not completely. There was no magic bullet. But they did a 
fairly decent job in reining in companies that were acting only in their best interest and for the profit profits of the day not caring about what might happen down the pike and we needed to get a hold of that and for the for a good a good part of it we did and to have an administration come in and say, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna tear the yoke off of of businesses so that they can thrive again," because too many restrictions have been put on them by the EPA and too many regulations, and that's scary stuff to me. Because look at what Canada is dealing with. Look at it. They took their oil and gas extraction industry to the umpteenth level and decimated the environment in the process and look at all of the water problems that they're having look at all of the environmental problems that they're having and and people are writing about this people are talking about this how does it not get to this country how do we reach our leaders to make sure and say hello here's here's your here's your blueprint this is where you're headed look at these people and look at the the illness in these communities so they the, the opposition critic here in Canada said for many communities that thought they were about to get a new water treatment system only to find out that the government had decided to order another feasibility study, delaying everything. There's that five to ten years bureaucracy. Because we know that once the government puts a plan into place, it's very difficult to um, separate ourselves from that, to... Um, to back out of that. To scale that back. So we're in trouble. These setbacks are devastating to communities. So it's in good faith that we're working with these communities with the very best technical advice that they can access, uh, Bennett said. It's, it, it really is our department working with the community in a way that is honest and straightforward. Even with 18 more communities now with clean water, Bennett still has 71 complicated situations to solve. They're convinced they're going to get it done, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like, you know, 18 down, 12 up. This is tough stuff. There's not a simple solution here. But we had better pay attention. We had better pay attention. So I'm going to take a quick break because we are already at the half of the hour. Um, 
somehow I only got one story done <laughs> and I have several, but we need to get through this stuff. We need to, uh, we need to deal with this and we have to make sure that we are listening to our indigenous communities because they are on the front line all the time. They are most affected. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with the Red Road Radio Show right after this. FYINation.com costs $40 a day to keep on the air. Our original content doesn't sell you mattresses or storable food when you listen. We rely on your contributions to keep our programming paywall free. If you can't contribute, word of mouth is just as important. Tweet us at hashtag FYILive or visit our chat at FYINation.com. And thank you for supporting FYINation. We want to hear from you. Give us a call at 810-479-4394. That's 810-479-4394. Or via Skype at FYI Nation. Feel free to tweet us at hashtag FYILive or visit our chat at FYINation.com. your transatlantic perspective on the news by listening to reality chat with rory boyd on mondays at 4 p.m eastern i'll take you through the week's biggest most depressing stories from the uk and around the world so hold on tight that's 4 p.m mondays replayed at 9 a.m on saturdays And welcome back to the Red Road Radio Show. I'm your host, Lou Hastings, from the Native Now Foundation. And uh, and uh, if you are joining us live, 810-479-4394 to call in. Hashtag FYI Live if you are on Twitter. And as always, FYINation.com, chat room. Do it, do it, do it. That's all I have to say. Um, I want to continue with listening we're talking about listening to indigenous communities. And there, uh, there was a story out of The Guardian on Monday 
that was talking about Australia's uh, indigenous population and specifically indigenous child removal rate uh, risks the second stolen generation. Um, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd has warned. So on the ninth anniversary of former Prime Minister's uh, apology, he actually apologized to indigenous people about um, boarding schools and residential schools. He is now urging the current government to place children with extended family or community if they need to be removed from where they are now, if they're in danger. And he's warned Australia that they face the risk of a second stolen generation because the first one, they were talking about... Um, all of those that were taken from their community and placed with non-indigenous families. Think about that for a minute. You are robbing that community of their future because they are not going to learn their culture, they're not going to learn their language, they're not going to pass stories down, they're not going to live traditionally, or even somewhat traditionally. That is a stolen generation. And this is the former Prime Minister of Australia warning Australia that they're, they're, uh, they're actually at risk for a second one arguing that the government should set a new target of seeing 100% of indigenous children placed with their extended family or or the community if you know if they need to be removed they need to stay within that community in a speech delivered on the anniversary of Rudd's 2008 apology to the stolen generations and uh on the eve of the release of the annual Closing the Gap report, the former Labor Prime Minister said the uh, existing targets needed to include a new metric on indigenous child removal. Rudd said that the, that the data pointed to a growing problem with indigenous child removal. He said in 2006, 6,497 children were in out-of-home care nationally. Then there was the Little Children are Sacred inquiry, which increased the focus on indigenous child welfare. By the end of June of 2007, it had jumped by 1,500 to 7,917 children, Rudd said at the Australian National University on Monday evening. Since then, the number has grown by about an additional 1,000 kids a year. So that by mid-2015, that's the most recent year of recorded data, it stood at, and this, this number is staggering and it makes me almost want to tear up, 15,432 children. 
And of those 15,432 children, 32.9% were not placed in accordance with the child placement principle. This is saying that no indigenous organization was consulted, no extended uh, extended family uh, care person was found, and no community care person was found. These kids were taken away. Again, this is 2017. Everyone listening. So Rudd called for the consideration of a new target about this 100%. That's what they should be striving for. Let's see the number of kids needing to be removed drop for the first time in a decade, he said. What I'm sure of, he said, is that we cannot simply stand back and let the numbers of indigenous children being removed grow by year by year without other options being tested within the wider indigenous community. We do not want another generation of young aboriginal children unnecessarily separated from their culture. And this is not a difficult concept. We do not want to see the emergence of a second stolen generation. Not by design, and but by default. So, last year's snapshot revealed that there was varied progress across the seven education, employment, and health targets. And no progress in raising the life expectancy of indigenous people. Indigenous adults are are still likely to die 10 years earlier than other Australians. Two of the uh, the objectives uh, were on track last year. The target to half the gap in child mortality by 2018 and a target to improve year 12 uh, attainment by 2020. So ahead of the release of the snapshot, Prime Minister Turnbull, current uh, Prime Minister, he paid tribute to Rudd's apology in 2008. He said it was a remarkable and historic moment. The galleries were filled overwhelmingly with our first Australians. There was almost no room in the Great Hall, the Prime Minister said. The area in front of uh, Parliament was a sea of humanity. It's an apology that today we reaffirm. It's an apology that has echoed through the years and will echo for centuries to come. It was an apology whose time had come. Trumbull said, as well as recognizing the challenges, it was important to validate the success stories. He said there were great stories of achievement, and we are looking at them here in this house. The first indigenous Australian to be a minister in a Commonwealth government and the first indigenous uh, women to be a member of this house and minister, of course, in the New South Wales government uh, previously. So there are great positive stories to tell, and we have to be focused on them as well. But 
the labor leader, Bill Shorten, acknowledged the successes, but said profound challenges remain on the road to reconciliation. He said the parliament needed to take hope from the resilience of indigenous people. We should be taking hope from the resilience of uh, 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 aboriginal people. Drawing hope from the success of their leadership. Finding hope in the way that communities, locals, young people, and their elders are tackling the problems they face. They're creating hope in, in a future where our first Australians have the first say in decisions which affect their lives. And with this hope, let us walk forward together in the spirit of the apology of nine years ago today. And why is this important to us here in this country? Because the same things happened here with residential and boarding schools and that removal from culture. And it was by design. It was not um, having these children removed. And up until recently, by the way, the Indian Child Wealth, uh, Child Wealth Welfare Act is still having some struggles. And we talked about a story where disproportionately Indigenous children were placed in non-Indigenous homes in Minnesota. We did a story like that um, a couple of weeks ago. This is how you eliminate a culture. This is how you destroy a language. This is how you decimate a population. Without killing them outright. Again, another cautionary tale. The numbers are going up. They're not going down. Of children being removed from their homes. And placed not with extended family and not within the community. This is setting them up to lose more of their culture. And it is devastating these communities. There was, uh, I posted a link up on uh, the Red Road Radio Show Facebook page. 10 things you should know about the National Apology. Just to give you an idea of this speech that was given in 2008 by then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. And it was an impassioned speech, no doubt. But, you know, there was a, uh, a they called it the bringing them home report. Um, that the Equal Opportunity Commission and the Human Rights, the, it was the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission uh, wanted to be done. And the report identified that forcible removal policies saw the removal of between 1 in 3 and 1 in 10 indigenous children in the period of 1910 to 1970. And the effects of such removal were, 
for most victims, negative, multiple, and profoundly disabling. And they also found in this report that the removal laws were racially discriminatory and genocidal in intent. This is how you destroy a community, a culture, a people without killing people outright. Many children removed um, don't come back. This national apology um, was not intended to uh, forgive and forget. It was supposed to be uh, f- actually in the in the actual language was for the purposes of responding to the effects of forcible removals. Uh, compensation would be widely defined to mean reparation. So they wanted to um, make an acknowledgement and an apology as part of reparation. Uh, Guarantees against repetition was another measure that they wanted to institute. But here we see that these measures really haven't worked. If the number of children removed from their homes is increasing by a thousand per year, clearly something's not right. Something's not working. More than 15,000 children removed from care across the country in 2014-15. And since the national apology to the stolen generations in 2008, the number has risen by 65% of children being removed. This is tough stuff. Indigenous children aged one through four, one through four, were 11 times more likely to be in out-of-home care than non-Indigenous children in the same age group. And there are claims that there are more Indigenous children being removed today than any other time in Australian history. This is 2017, and we cannot get this right. And we, when I say we, you know I mean as a collective humanity. I think that's, that I'm being clear on that. How do we not get this right? When we have examples from different continents, when we have examples from different countries... How then do we not get this right after all this time since 1910? One of those pieces, you know, 10 things you should know, that sorry is not just an admission of guilt, but it's also an expression of sorrow. That was Prime Minister Rudd's... um, One of his purposes. He didn't just apologize 
uh, as an admission of guilt. He wanted to express that this was, you know, a feeling of personal responsibility, of sorrow. And I think we all know this part, that sorry is an important part of healing. I think that's a, a psychology staple. That we understand that apologies mean that we can start to move forward and repair relationships. Because you can start to heal. There's no, the, there is no expectation of forgetting, and there, and there shouldn't be. Because when you forget, you repeat. And that, Prime Minister Rudd was very specific about saying, this is not just a, an apology, it's, it's a commitment to not repeat this. And yet here we are at over 15,000 children being removed. I, I, it almost boggles the mind. And then for our last story, and I'll go through this real quick and give you my final thoughts for the day. Um, this is from the Oklahoman editorial board. This came out two days ago also. Um, and I found this to be interesting that they're, they're actually looking at different laws in the books to repeal them, federal laws that target American Indians specifically that for some reason are still on the books. So um, this article says, as we have had reason to note before, over time, state and federal statutes become cluttered with laws that remain on the books long after they've outlived their usefulnesses. And, and we have seen examples of this all over the country in, in all kinds of laws. There's some silly laws out there. People have written books about them. And in most cases, those no longer enforced and obsolete laws may be pointless, but they do, you know, they don't do any real harm. Yet there are examples of outdated laws whose continued existence, even, is an insult to many Americans uh, and a reminder of past prejudice. And such is the case with many federal laws relating to American Indians, which is why this effort to repeal those laws deserve praise. So the repealing existing substandard provisions encouraging uh, conciliation with tribes or the Respect Act, and we talked about this once before, was filed by Senator uh, Mike Rounds of South Dakota, Republican, and co-authored by Senator James Langford, a Republican from Oklahoma City would repeal several outdated and even offensive federal laws regarding American Indians. Um, a, a similar repeal effort was attempted last year, but the measure didn't make it all the way through the legislative process. Um, let's see if I can give you a couple of uh, a couple of them here. Review the laws being repealed 
and you think you're, you're reading something out of the Old West, not federal statutes in 2017. One existing federal law declares that the consent of parents, guardians, or next of kin shall not be required to place Indian youth in an Indian reform school. On the books. That's a law. They don't have to ask the parents. They don't need their consent. They can just take them. Another law allows the president to declare all treaties with a tribe to be abrogated if the, tri- uh, if the tribe is at war with the United States. That hasn't been used, by the way, since 1886. Similarly, another law still calls for elimination of federal support promised through treaty should hostilities occur. Federal law still allows the government to withhold money from Indians holding captives other than Indians. How about that? Until said captives shall be surrendered to the lawful authorities of the United States. Or how about this one? Another federal law declares no annuities or monies or goods shall be paid or distributed to Indians while they are under the influence of any descripti- uh, description of intoxicating liquor, or in any instance where federal officials believe liquor may be within convenient reach. First of all, it's appalling that these laws were ever written in the first place. But the fact that they're still on the books is crazy. So, um, so I hope they're successful in in pushing some of these through to get them removed from the books. You know, laws that that aren't worth enforcing aren't worth having on the books. Um, and some of them just downright embarrassing. And they specifically target target Native Americans. And, uh, you know, it's scary to think that somebody actually could uh, whip out one of these statutes and say, hey, it's right here, federal law. They could use it in court if it's on the books. If they want to remove Indian youth without the consent of the parents or their guardians, they can. It's crazy stuff. So here's my parting thoughts for the evening. It's more than telling a story or just telling the news. The more important part of this is the restoration and return to cultural storytelling. The only way to heal and revitalize indigenous communities and tribal nations is to restore that ability to perpetuate culture to continue with this storytelling. I hope our interviews on this show actually help with that storytelling. The guests that we have on continue to tell their stories, to tell their successes, to tell their challenges. And, and we want to continue to promote that on this show. And we want to continue to promote that with the Native Now Foundation. And I hope that all of you 
out there will help us to continue to do that. I want to thank you for listening as always, of course. And I want you to listen to this clip by Lorraine Peters as she talks about stolen generations as we talked about in these articles. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the Red Road Radio Show. I'm only one person, but if I was in my community, and I say this in workshops, if we took 50 children out of that community, one community, 50 to 100, and it would have happened, have a think about the devastation that was left behind. Have a think about the child that you just took. Where's the help for that child in 14 years time? when you've turned it into something that it shouldn't be. Have a think about the communities, the devastation, the grief, the trauma that's in that community with no children to teach, no children to tell the stories to, no children to teach dance and song, no children to teach culture, all lost, language. Everything is all lost because you've taken a couple of generations out of a community. What's the old elders doing now? They clamp, they shut up shop. They're suspicious. They're so deep in trauma that they don't talk about it. The silence in communities today is just infectious because they will not trust anybody anymore. The healing that needs to be done there Tuesday through Friday, radio professional Nicole Sandler is live with the Nicole Sandler Show, bringing you amazing interviews and progressive commentary that draws you in. Listen live at 3 p.m. Eastern, or you can find her podcast at NicoleSandlerShow.com on demand.